Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. Before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producer Candace Anderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, simply go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find all the information there on how to contribute. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Paul Joseph Travers, and he has written a book about hiking the Appalachian Trail and all the high strangeness that he encountered. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Delighted to talk about the book and, and delighted to talk about uh, a little bit about nature and spirituality this evening. Thank you. Um, so first, what, what uh, inspired you to hike the trail? I'm, I'm sorry, could you repeat that again? Uh, what inspired you to hike the trail? Uh, initially, uh, it was my father's Alzheimer's disease. Uh, my father was a late days Alzheimer's patient. Uh, and when I was a young child, at about the age of nine years old, we were at a state park one day and my father said, you know, one day we're going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And my father was a uh, World War II veteran, uh, seriously wounded in the Pacific with a leg injury. Uh, and his walking career was forever ended at Peleliu Island when he fought alongside the Marines. But that stuck in my mind for decades. I mean, I had no idea what the Appalachian Trail was about, right? It sounded exotic. Uh, it sounded a little bit like Davy Crockett, you know? And it, it just sparked my imagination. And back in 2009, when I was ready to retire, I was looking through my desk drawer and I came upon a series of articles that I had scrolled away I'd say over the years, over the decades, and one was on the Appalachian Trail, and that was really the spark that ignited my hike. Hmm. And um, so, so did you? When you, like, I know, I, I had a friend who hiked the trail, and he did it for a charity. Um, did did you? Were you able to raise any money for charity for uh, hiking the trail? Yes, uh, I had the uh, Alzheimer's Association. And at the end, I raised over just over $7,000 for them, which, because uh, there was a grassroots movement, um, a little bit of local publicity, you know, national publicity was very limited. And, you know, to me, that was a, a success. But it was more than about raising money. It was about raising awareness uh, for Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's families. Plus, it, it it gave some purpose and meaning to my father's disease, to my mother, to me, which was, I guess that if, if it never raised a dollar and it gave some purpose for my mother that my father had to suffer like that, then the hike was a success. 
Ah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a tough thing on a family to lose somebody from that disease. Yes, yes, it is. Um, so where did you start on the trail? Uh, Springer Mountain, Georgia. Uh, I was what they call a nobo. Uh, that means the northbounder. So that's the traditional start for hikers. Uh, I started on March 30th and I made my way to Mount Katahdin. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't arrive at Mount Katahdin uh, until a year later due to a series of injuries that I incurred along the trail. And that's that's part of what's uh, parlayed, described in, in, in my book. Hmm. Um, so, so you have to realize now when I was out there, I was a, I was one of the greyhounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was one of the older hikers, uh, probably the average age of the hiker somewhere, you know, mid late twenties, maybe early thirties is the large group of people. Then you have a smattering of people in their thirties and forties. And I'd probably say the next largest hiking population might be seniors who have retired and who are setting out on the trail. Wow. Um, so how many miles a day did you hike? Uh, at the beginning, I was averaging between uh, 12 and 14. After, I'd say, about three weeks or a month on the trail, uh, I could do 16 to 20 miles. Wow. Uh, probably by May, I was doing 20 miles easily. But it uh, 20 miles was my limit. Mm. You know, I would, I would hike with a lot of younger people, you know, and they would push maybe 24, 25 miles. But uh, physically, I, I found my comfort range was somewhere between 16 and 20. Mm. Um, I, I, I know like when you're hiking the trail, you know, eventually like you'll hit a town and you can restock up. Um, but in between, like in between towns, I imagine that you're out there sleeping in a tent like, like, how did you, um, you know, find places to camp and eat and stuff like that? Uh, they have uh, shelters along the trail. Uh, so what you do is when you start out, you have an Appalachian Trail guidebook. And it gives you the mileage between, uh, say, geographical points, mileage between the shelters. So you can normally space... Uh, your hiking days out to stay at a shelter, either stay in the shelter, and most of them had limited capacity, or you could pitch a tent at the adjacent campground. So I traveled with everything on my back, Mm -hmm. and I normally tried to keep it uh, around 30 pounds or lighter. And um, so, so how far into your hike? Did it start becoming a spiritual journey for you? Probably at Blood Mountain, which was the site of the Cherokee battle. Uh, my wife and I, uh, her trail name was Rainbow Bright, which was shortened to Bright. We were just talking and somehow I had done a lot of research since I'm kind of a history buff on the Cherokee Indians. You know, in the Cherokee believed that uh, the creator created mother earth and as long as everything was connected people lived in harmony so that got me kind of thinking about spirituality on the trail and then after our day 
on Blood Mountain, we came down uh, to mountain crossings at Wallasee, and it is a outfitters on the road there. And what you do is you pass underneath the outfitter's building. The, the trail goes right through the building. And then at, it was at that, I would say at that mountain's crossing was where the idea of a spiritual journey came in because I met a lady by the name of Susie Miles who ran a Appalachian Trail ministry. And on that morning, she was providing hamburgers for hikers. And I jokingly named uh, that chapter Cheeseburgers for Jesus. <laughs> so we got to talking and uh, very personable, but very uh, committed person to her beliefs. And we were just chit-chatting. And she was the one that was telling me, she said, uh, she said, what's your trail name? I said, well, I said, it started out as Rain Man, Rain Dance, because it rained like, it ended up raining like 44 of the first 60 days on the trail. And I said, well, I wrote, I don't like that. I said, some people call me uh, uh, Paul the Apostle because, you know, I'm on the road to Damascus, Virginia, which was where they have the big trail days festival. I said, that kind is a little pretentious. And I said, I'm still searching for a name. And she said, well, I like just Paul. And she said, because I like the idea of Paul going to Damascus. And then she said to me, she said, when you're out there, she said, just connect the dots as you go along. And what she was saying to me was just connect the spiritual or cosmic dots. And that really kind of planted the seed in my mind that maybe this is a spiritual journey. And each stop I make is not necessarily a transformation, but it's going to be a revelation. And the people I met on the trail, and I have to say, gosh, most of them were great. I mean, they had inspiring stories. But whether good or bad, I viewed them as mentors on my spiritual journey. Wow. So so what were some of the dots that you connected on your journey? I'm sorry, some of the what? What were some of the dots that you connected on your journey? Uh, the first one was at uh, with Susie Miles. And then as I, farther, I moved farther north, uh, I ran into more people and more events. And I kind of uh, transformed from a religious person to a spiritual person. And probably it wasn't until there's a chapter in the book uh, where I was wanted by the FBI. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> I got to hear this. Uh, when I, I worked for the federal government, and when I retired, some of my coworkers, they, they wanted to follow. I, I worked for an army agency, civilian agency that was run by a military command. So we were kind of, uh, we were uh, the odd oddball group in, in, in the army. And people felt that they weren't getting their uh, monetary compensation for annual performance appraisals. They weren't getting money for educational benefits. So they wanted to follow what they called an IG uh, inspection, investigators general inspection, which would go up through the chain of command, actually going through the military command. So, you know, I was retiring. So I thought, okay, you know, I know what you're going through. I've gone through this for almost 30 years. So I put my name, signed my name to this uh, form to have this investigation initiated. 
Well, I was on leave when I was on the trail ready to retire. And I called home at Fontana Dam, which was just before you entered the Smokies. And my wife said to me, she said, you got to come home. She said, the FBI was here. They need to speak to you. They want to search the house. And I, I said, you got to do better than that. And I thought she was joking and she was dead serious. And what had happened was uh, my workplace, uh, the command retaliated with an iron fist and a very heavy hand. And they had statements from people that I had never worked with that said that I was uh, abusive in the workplace and that I had allegations of, of verbally abusing and employees. And I had never worked with these people, mind you. So what I did was, uh, she said, you got to come home. I said, okay, I'm coming home. So I tried to get a ride from Fontana Dam to Gatlinburg to get a rental car to come home, but I was unsuccessful. So what I did was I said, well, I'll hike from Fontana Dam to the gap that takes you down to Gatlinburg. And it's, it was 40 miles. And I thought, well, it's two days of 20 miles, but I wasn't ready to do 20 miles a day. So by the second day, I was 20 miles from uh, the road to Gatlinburg and the weather closed in on me. And uh, to say I was exhausted was to put it mildly. And that we I had to climb up the Klingman's Dome, which was one of the highest points on the Appalachian Trail. And I had stopped at the last shelter. Now it was starting, it rained all day and I was soaking wet and just miserable. So I asked people if they wanted to come with me to Clingman's Dome because I hoped to get a ride in the parking lot there to take me to Gatlinburg. And they said, no, we're staying the night here because the weather's closing in. So I said, well, I have a family emergency. I have to get home. I have to climb that mountain. And on my way up the mountain now, it's very late afternoon. Uh, this is still April, gets dark early, and sure enough, the dark clouds rolled in and the rain turned into sleet, which turned into snow. So here I was climbing up this mountain and I'm soaked. I had my Gore-Tex shell on, I'm soaked from the inside from sweat and on the outside from the rain. So every few hundred yards, I'm going about the last mile and a half to Clingman's Mountain, Clingman's Dome, I would stop and I would jokingly call out I'd say, it was a Sunday, and I'm going, I'm here, Lord, need some help. Do you think you can help an old altar boy out, right? <laughs> and then I'd take a swig of water, you know, and I'd drag the pack on, and I'd go up another couple hundred yards, and it, you know, the, 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 the fog started rolling in. So I did this about three times, and finally, I'm on the side of, of the trail, and it's a, it's a rocky trail that leads up there, and there's, you know, there's no place to really pitch a tent. And I started to doze off and I'm thinking I'm getting hypothermia. So once again, I, I, I cried out in the wilderness. I said, yo, God, I'm still here. Still need some help. You know, if you're open on Sundays, here I am. <laughs> so I'm laying on my backpack and I hear the stones avalanche to my right on the trail. And I look over and I see a lake and I look up and it's a hiker. It's a younger guy, and he's got, like, uh, athletic pants, like yoga pants. He has a long sleeve shirt on, and he had low-cut hiking shoes, and that's it. And he says to me, he said, I heard you're from above. 
He said, you're almost there. He said, keep moving, put one foot in front of another, and you'll be there in no time. And he used to say, I'm speechless. I'm kind of embarrassed because here I am crying out in the wilderness, you know, and geez, actually somebody heard my prayers. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he says, you're almost there. I said, you know, so he goes down the trail and he fades into the fog. So this was the first guy I had seen in hours. First person I'd seen on the trail, saw him running after him. And I'm kind of, you know, where are you going? And by now he's disappeared in the fog. And then a few seconds later, after pause, I hear this, the same place you are. And I said, where's that? And he said, home. And I was stunned because I did not mention to this gentleman that I was going home. So I go home. Uh, I hire a lawyer to defend these allegations, which were dismissed. Uh, a few days later, I'm back on the trail. I'm back in Hot Springs, North Carolina. And I'm looking for my tribe, the people I started hiking with. So I went to this pub for for dinner one evening, and the people I saw in that last shelter the day before I hiked up the Clingman's Dome were there. And so they invited me over. I told them my story. Uh, you know, I, I became like a uh, counterculture hero to the younger people. You know, the man who fought the system, Don Quixote, who's tilting at windmills here. So it was good for a lot of free beers along the trail. And then I asked them, did you guys see a hiker? And they said, no. They said, you were the last person we saw that day. And that day when I did get to Clingman's Dome, it completely fogged in. Uh, visibility was maybe 10 feet in front of me. So I'm looking around, and I finally just about walked straight into the, it was a, uh, it is a dome. It's a walkway dome for, for tourists. And eventually I was able to find a paved path and get down to the parking lot. And there were no cars in the parking lot. And I thought, wow, what has just happened here? So I thought, well, it's it's snowing, uh, it's foggy, so the restrooms were open, so I was ready to spend the night in the restroom. So I got my clothes off, I'm drying everything out, and I hear a vehicle pull up, and I thought, oh, park rangers come to my rescue. You know, I, I look out the window, and I see a van at the far end of the parking lot. And then I see people get out, and there were some young children, two children, a boy and a girl. They were feeding wild turkeys. So I grab my stuff, and I run down to the van, and there's this, an older lady, older, probably my age, and she's standing there. And I says, do you think I, I got a family emergency? Do you think I could get down to Gatlinburg? And she said, well, she said, you can't ask me. She said, I'm just a driver. I said, you have to ask these people because they hired me. And upon closer inspection, it was an Amish couple and their family. Typical Amish family. Uh, the gentleman had the straw hat, you know, uh, the shirt with the suspenders, the black pants, the black shoes. So I went up to him and I asked him if I could get a ride down. And he said, well, I'll have to speak with my wife. So he goes over to his wife and I turned to the driver and I said, what do you think? She said, doesn't look good. I said, I agree with you, right? <laughs> so he goes over to his wife, comes back to me and he says, I will take you down to Gatlinburg on the following conditions. You sit in the front of the van. You do not talk to my children. And this is our vacation. If we want to stop and take pictures, you have to come along for the ride. I said, no problem. So about halfway down the mountain, 
I could see the children were interested, you know, in who I was. And he said, he pulled me aside and said, would you mind answering some questions for my children? I said, be my pleasure. So I, you know, I felt like I was, I was the mountain man, the Jeremiah Johnson here <laughs> of, of the Smokies. So we get down into Gatlinburg and they said, where are you staying at? Well, I said, I just, this motel that, that caters to hikers. I said, no, get me a, a, a ride or taxi the next morning to Knoxville airport so I could rent a car and go home. And, and I said to him, I said, well, you know, I want to thank you for being gracious trail angels today. I said, you know, you pulled me out of a bind. And, and the gentleman says to me, he says, no, he says, we thank you, Paul. My family thanks you for allowing us to profess our faith as good Samaritans on this Sunday in the name of Jesus Christ. And I was like, wow. And I offered them some money, which I knew they wouldn't take, but they drove me right to the door of this motel. And that I told people that was the story of my guardian angel on Clingman's Dome. Wow. And, and, and the chapter is titled, An Angel Appeared and Said. And I firmly believe, I don't know who that gentleman was, but until someone comes forward and convinces me, I actually believe that that was my guardian angel on that day. That's incredible. What luck. Who do you think that guy was that you were following, trying to follow who kind of disappeared in the fog? Do you think it was an actual person or do you think it was something else? I accept the mystery, right? And believe it was my guardian angel until proven otherwise. Because there were other events that happened after that that really kind of reaffirmed my belief that, hey, this, this wasn't a normal experience. Now, I don't know, maybe I was hallucinating since I had hiked by myself to the point of exhaustion. Was I suffering from hypothermia and hallucinating? I mean, you know, there's a number of scientific, I guess, explanations you could have for this sighting, but uh, I'm going along with guardian angel till proven otherwise until this gentleman comes forward. Maybe someday he'll read the book or somebody will tell him about the book and he will be able to prove to me that he was that gentleman on the trail because there were no cutoffs or what they call blue blaze trail shortcuts to get back to Klingman's dome. He would have to walk back up the dome past me and there were no cars in the parking lot. So that's, that's my story that I'm sticking to. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened next? So, so, so you go home, you get the, the, the charges dropped, you come back, you hook up with your crew in the, in the pub. Where do you go from there? I'm, I'm back on the trail now. And then I stopped. I guess you could say I was emotionally, physically, and spiritually exhausted because I, I, I was not coming to grips on how uh, my employer, who I diligently worked for for 30 years, could do this to protect their own interests. But, you know, that's the way, way life is sometimes. So I, I got back to Klingman's uh, Dome, and then I walked while well, I hiked to uh, my next stop was going to be Hot Springs, North Carolina, hopefully to meet up with the rest of my tribe. 
But outside of Hot Springs, there's a place called Max Patch, which is one of the balds on the Appalachian Trails. And one of the balds is that uh, it's a bald spot on the mountain. Mm-hmm. It's literally a bald spot. And, and you know, scientists claim no one really knows how they got there, why the vegetation won't grow. Some people say, well, they, they were... Uh, they were farmed years ago. People cleared the balds uh, to use the feeding livestock. And then, you know, there's a number of theories. But Max Patch Bald is probably one of the famous few spots on the Appalachian Trail. So I stopped there for the night. Uh, back then, I don't know if it is now, it was illegal to camp on the bald. And there were people, I got there late afternoon, people already setting up their tent. And I thought, oh, man. I already had one running with the federales. Right? I don't want another one. So I went on the opposite side of the bald and I camped there and I came up and had dinner with my fellow hikers, went back to my tent. And then that evening I thought, oh, wow. I said, I would like to see the bald at nighttime. And that's when I tell people I really had my first transcendent experience on the bald. And now I don't know if it was because, like I said, my, I, I, I was physically, mostly spiritually drained. Uh, I was waiting to be filled with something, you know, whether you call it uh, spirit or whatever. I, I was at the point of, you know, almost like complete exhaustion. And I went up on that bald. Everybody was asleep. And that's where I had my... Uh, my first transcendent, I tell people, experience that really kind of put me on the path to this finding spirituality and nature. And if you'd like, if if, if I could read the pa- a few sentences from my stay on Max Patch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I, I, I think this is going to kind of sum up oh, a big part of the hike for readers because – now they're going to say, wow, this guy. And I think if, if you go there with an open heart, if you go into nature with an open heart, I, th- I think you will be you will be fulfilled and filled. And let me preface that by I, I tell people, especially readers, pay attention because most of the events throughout the book end up being connected, you know, connecting the cosmic dots. And I tell people. Pay attention to my quotes I gave you at the beginning, because they really set the tone for the book. And at the beginning of the prologue, I have two quotes, one from John Muir, of course, famous environmentalist and outdoorsman. And it reads, whenever we go in the mountains or indeed in any of God's wild fields, we find more than we seek. And when I got done my hike, I found that to be an undeniable truth. And the second quote was from, oh, I, I, I won't ask you your era. <laughs> I'm a baby boomer, right? From the Woodstock generation. Right. So I thought, how do I introduce the book to the readers? So what I did, I quoted uh, Joni Mitchell from her song, Woodstock. So the second quote was, I came upon a child of God. He was walking along the road. And I asked him, where are you going? And this he told me. So people say, some people got it. Some people didn't get it. I said, 
that's me. They're introducing me in the story. I said, pay attention, people. Okay, on the Max Patch. Right. At about one o'clock, I was awakened by the sound of my tent straining against the wind. I opened my eyes and listened as the tent trembled. Outside, the wind hissed through the trees like ocean waves splashing on a sandy beach. Another storm was brewing. Brewing. Before it arrived, I wanted to see the bald at night. Grabbing my headlight jacket and camp shoes, I crawled stealthily from nylon from my nylon cocoon. Following the well-worn path to the summit, I tiptoed through the gypsy camp, which was my fellow hikers. At the edge of the bald, I faced east and extended my arms as if taking flight. My jacket flapped in the wind like an unfurled flag. Before me, an endless ocean of twinkling stars stretched to infinity. Staring at the star at the heavens, I was quickly hypnotized by the night sky. How many stars? How many planets? How many dreams had been pondered and plundered by mystic voyagers who dared to reach out and capture the magic of the light? I pondered. Suddenly, there was a profound silence as deep as the night. The wind had taken its last breath. At that moment, I heard a faint whisper from the darkness of the corners of my mind. Be still and know that I am God, the voice commanded. I closed my eyes and instinctively fell to my knees, humbled by the power and the glory of the unseen presence. Opening my eyes, I reached out to touch the heavens. A warm, tingling sensation radiated throughout my body as my fingertips disappeared in the inky edge of eternity. Time had stopped, my physical existence suspended. For a nanosecond, I was one in spirit with the universe, past, present, and future, and with those who came before me and those who would follow. So that, oh, I, I got goosebumps just reading that passage again. And uh, it's that after that, you know, it, it kind of occurred to me, Paul, you know, there's more here than just a physical journey proving that 60 is the new 40 and raising money for the Alzheimer's Association. Wow. So, so what was the real? Is it like, like, is it a connection with nature and with the universe that you were starting to connect with? Yes, I, 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 you know, when I finished the hike on my Facebook page, I, you know, it posted. Uh, I was telling people I, my new religion is transcend naturism, and I put for definition. Enhancing your relationship with God through the divinity of nature. And I think that's what people have to do. If you're on a spiritual journey and, you know, uh, you're looking to connect, you have to get out in nature because nature is just the natural presence of God. And when you're hiking, say, a trail like the, the Appalachian Trail, uh, a lot of times you're by yourself, and I teach people that silence, that silence is the language of God. And that stillness is the home of God where you have that conversation. Because it, uh, at the end, it, it, it changed my whole outlook from being mainly a, a religious person to a spiritual person. And I am still a very religious person due to my upbringing as Boy, it doesn't get any more religious than Polish Catholic, does it? <laughs> that became a nice calling card for me on the trail uh, as, I, as I met people along the trail. Wow. Um, it's almost like you, 
you had like a little bit of an, an enlightenment experience. Definitely, it, it each probably each state was a revelation. Each stop, each person I made was a revelation, which kind of in the end came to a transformation. Because, like I said, my my father was a late stage Alzheimer's patient. My mother at the time was dying from cancer. So my father passed away in 2009 and and my mom passed away in 2013. So uh, when I finished up in 2010, you know, she was uh, in hospice care and I would go sit with her and we would talk like, not like mother and son, but like two old friends, you know, had, who had journeyed down the road of life. And that, wow, that I, I think my experiences on the trail gave some enlightenment, not only to me, but to my mother, because we would sit and talk about life in general. And my mother knew she was dying. And she says, she would say, I don't, I don't know why God keeps me. She said, I live my life. She said, I'm ready to move on to the next phase. And she would say, well, what do you think heaven is like? And I would say to her, I said, well, I said, I don't think in terms of heaven and hell anymore. I said, I think in terms of heaven is what you dream it's going to be. I said, look what God does with nature. I said, it's a miracle every second. I said, imagine what God can do with dreams. And I think my mother felt some sense of fulfillment. And if you want to call an enlightenment with that statement. Wow. That's beautiful to be able to share something like that with your mom when she was in hospice. Because the chapter, the I guess one of the last chapters, it was, uh, I, don't, I don't know, you're familiar and, you, and your listeners are familiar with the book Tuesdays with Maury. I've never read it. And I, I, I titled that chapter Wednesdays with Franny because my mother's name was Francis. So I kind of borrowed a little bit from a bestseller, right? <laughs> I figured that because <laughs> every every Wednesday was the day that I sat with my mother, and like I said, we would just oh yeah, we would just sit outside when we could, and we would just like talk like old friends who were coming to the end, literally the end of the trail. <laughs> wow! So, so there's like another connection, like the trail be- sort of becomes like not just an actual journey, but symbolic to a spiritual journey in life exactly that that's very well said Gary that that was one of the points I try to make the readers that the trail for me became a journey of life wow so so where did you go next after where were you at North, uh, South Carolina uh North Carolina North Carolina yeah the, the, the trail goes through 14 states. Uh, so after Hot Springs, I, I had a I had an experience in Hot Springs, not a what would you call a spiritual or transcendent experience, but uh, it reinforced this this subliminal idea I had that you know what is God to me now God is just is love you know like agape was the term I heard on trail unconditional love. I got in the hot springs, and most of the people I had started hiking with, uh, I call it the diaspora. They were gone. 
you know, some people were already hurt. Some people, one person went home and a couple people were just staying in town for a while. So I said, well, I, I got to get moving, you know. I, I lost three days here going home and being interviewed by the FBI. So that morning, <laughs> I, I I stopped at the, uh, it was the Iron Horse restaurant and hotel. They had a little coffee shop. So I looked, I'm peering through the windows. I knock on the door. I see somebody there. They weren't open yet. So the lady comes. She says, ah, she said, we're going to open in a few minutes. She says, come on in. She said, I just put a cup of co- uh, a pot of coffee you know started the pot of coffee yeah you come on in and talk to me so i was the only person in there so we we started talking and i'm telling her about uh, my hike was named herm's hike in honor of my father my father's name was herman travers so boy that old world name huh herman <laughs> travers yeah so i'm telling her about uh my dad and his battle as a late stage alzheimer's patient and i'm i'm telling her you know uh, about my viewpoints of the nursing home. I said, you know, it, it's really a Dante's Inferno. I said, but I, I see so much hope and I see so many small miracles every day with the people who are the patients here. Some of them who actually get out of the nursing home. And then I said, you know, just last night, I said, I was coming into the restaurant to trek in the hotel. I said, this young lady was coming out the door walking very stiff-limbed as if she had a handicap. You know, and she, she bumped into me, you know, she says, oh, I'm sorry. I said, no, 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 no. And I said, she had long blonde hair. And then this lady goes to me, did she have pink pajamas on? I said, yeah, it looked like pink pajamas bottoms on. And then she says, did she get into a blue van? I said, yeah, she got into a blue van. And she says, that's my daughter. I said, okay. She said, let me pour you another cup of coffee and listen to my story. Now, the lady at the coffee shop was Karen Nagel, and the young lady I saw coming out of the, uh, the restaurant hotel was Jenna, her daughter. And the story was this. A few years ago, her daughter went in for a routine operation. She had just graduated from college. She was just starting her life, right, starting her career. Something went wrong during the operation. Uh, She suffered from a lack of oxygen, caused brain damage. The doctors told Karen and her husband she will be in a vegetative state for the rest of her life, and they recommended putting her in an institution. And she said, no, we're bringing Jana home. And they brought her home. And she did some various therapies. One of them was horseback riding therapy. And it was like a minor miracle. The young lady came back to being a functioning adult. Physically, she'll never be, you know, a full functioning adult as she was before the operation. And the story just brought tears to my eyes because at that moment, I thought of my own two daughters back home. And one was in the Coast Guard as an officer. And the other was just getting ready to graduate from college. And I thought, geez, what a tragedy. What the power of love that is that Karen and her husband had for Jenna to bring her home. And that that kind of stayed with me for the rest of the hike. Because it got me thinking about the power of love and the types of love that you'll find on the trail. Wow. It's interesting, too. Like You mentioned like the horse 
uh, how horse riding helped her. I have a, my goddaughter is, um, she has Down syndrome. And uh, what really, really helps her is actually like riding horses. Because the, the, uh, Karen said to me, she said, Paul, she said, this was a miracle in my life, this therapeutic horseback riding. Because it, it not only got her motor skills back to a functioning level, you know, it kind of stimulated her cognizant abilities and to be able to ride the horse and make decisions on the horse. Wow. So that was just one of the love stories that I encountered on the trail. And it, it, well, it resonates with it. You know, when you're going through a family, going through their own personal heartbreak, mm-hmm. as with my father and my mother. And, and what it, the lesson it taught me is that, you know, we're all connected. We are not alone here in life. Everybody is facing their own personal battles. So when you meet people, you know, treat them with kindness and compassion because they are the same as you recognize that the godliness in them, right? That spark, a spiritual spark of God in your fellow man. And that was probably when this, but this, this concept was started, you know, seeding in my brain that, yeah, there's a whole lot going on here, Paul, keep walking, take the next step and can't wait to see what's around the corners. <laughs> Oops, this is the wrong button. Um, so, well, that's incredible, you know. And I agree with you that there's an element to our human experience that we all share, and and really that almost that that you know it it I mean it, it's 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 loss, it's loss, it's pain, it's suffering, it's growing, all those things all human beings have in common. And if we could focus on those things that we have in common, this would be a totally different world. Yes, it would be. And that's the kind of message that I preach to people now is, you know, recognize. Because I, I, I jokingly, when I see people and, and when I leave them, you know, I put my hands on my chest and I say, namaste, right? I, I recognize the spirit of God in you or, or the God spark in you. And they just laugh. And I said, oh, no. I said, that's what you need to do in today's world. Uh. That's beautiful. That's definitely a message that the world needs right now, big time. Um, so, so where did you go next? What was the next state? Let me guess. See, if we're in North Carolina, I guess next would be North Carolina. That we're we're, we're going to head to Virginia on the bike. Uh, Virginia. But before we get to Virginia, well, I got my trail name, which was Sundance. Uh, it was rain dance. So <laughs> I, I really didn't have a trail name, Gary. So I, I, right after this hot springs, I'm hiking. And I met up with these group of younger hikers. Uh, and they, and they were, there was four or five of them. And, and the gentleman's name, who's kind of leader of the pack, his, his trail name was Recon because he was a veteran who served a couple tours in Iraq. Uh, and then his looked like his romantic interest at the time was uh, a young lady by the name of Muffin because she said <laughs> she liked to eat muffins. And I think it was more like, well, no, she's his love must muffin here on the trail. <laughs> and and then there was uh, 
there was a guy named nicknamed Tree because he had these long gangly limbs. And then there was a guy named Flipper because he was studying marine biology. So we were sitting around the uh, campfire one evening. And and so, you know, everybody's just chit-chatting. Uh, someone someone had a bottle of, of whiskey they were passing around. And some people, you know, there was a few marijuana joints going around. But now I said, guys, you know, that stuff's back in the 60s. I'm too old for that now. So I said, well, I'm going to take leave from you guys. I said, I am going to hit the... So as I was get up, they said, oh, not so fast, old timer. <laughs> and they said, sit back down. And some of these people I had met in Hot Springs, they said, you know, we looked at your website. You know, we found out that you're hiking, you know, Herm's hike in honor of your dad. They said, but we don't know anything about you. They said, what's your trail name? I said, well, I don't have a trail name. So then, you know, this guy, Recon, he gets with everybody. So then they come back to me a few minutes later and so what they do, they had me kneel down in front of the campfire. And this guy, Recon, he had his hiking pole. So he tapped me on the shoulder as as you would be knighted. Mm-hmm. And then he gives me his flask to take a drink. And they said, from here forth forward, you will be known as Sundance. He who dances with the mountains to honor his father. And I thought, yeah, I like that trail name. That's the trail name I'm going to keep. And that that's my what's the right trail name for the rest of the trip. Cool. All right, and then are you ready to move on? <laughs> All right. So so now we're going to Virginia? Now we're we're gonna we're gonna go uh Wait, did you go through Kentucky? The, the trail kind of borders North Carolina and Tennessee until it reaches Virginia. Mm-hmm. So uh I, I hit a great string of hostels, you know, where people said you got to stay there for their hospitality. And one of the hostels I stayed at was called the Greasy Creek Friendly. And it was named after there was a creek nearby that had some kind of mineral in it that made the water kind of greasy. So that's where it took its name from. And the lady who ran the hostel, her name was Cece, as in C-E-E-C-E. And she was, she was an older lady, maybe a few years younger than me, the kindest person. And she was, we were, since it was somebody my age, I really had somebody to really talk to. So a couple nights, well, I was there because we got socked in by the weather. So I was there for two nights. So the one night we sat on the porch and we just talked about spiritual journeys. And she had just uh, joined a church, kind of a uh, Christian movement uh, with roots in Judaism. And we were talking about spiritual journeys, blah, blah. And I was talking about my experiences so far. And we were talking about, I guess I mentioned the power of prayer. And that night she said to me, she said, Paul, remember this as you go along the trail. She, she said, you are the answer to somebody's prayers. And I said, CC, you know, you're right. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. We are the answer to somebody's prayers. And then that time, and I was, because I told her my angel story, right? She mm-hmm. loved that. So the next day, uh, she took us up to Roan Mountain and dropped us off to continue to hike. And then she, she looked up into the foggy mist and she said, you better get moving, Sundance. I see your angels up there. So then I <laughs> headed north. And then I, I uh, 
eventually stayed at one of the shelters called Kinkura, which was run uh, run by a still run by a man by the name of Bob Peoples, and he's like a trail legend. One of the most kindliest gentlemen you will meet on the trail. So I left Kinkura after a wonderful stay. I met some trail legends, a man by the name of Baltimore Jack, who passed away a few years ago, who ended up living his life on the trail, actually. So I was headed toward, oh, another shelter, a place called Watauga Dam. So I was at Laurel Creek, and it started to rain. It, it was a monsoon, a blinding rain came down, and I was walking along the creek, and rain came into my jacket, and what happened was I went to pull the string on my hood that tightened up, and I slipped, and I fell into the creek. So the fall was about maybe six or seven feet, and the creek was running high, but it wasn't that deep. And luckily, you know, I, had to I didn't see my life in slow motion, but I fell in slow motion. I landed on my backpack. I think my backpack saved my life, because if I would have landed on my side of my face or my face and knocked myself out, I would have drowned. So there I am. I'm in this creek, and water is rushing over me, maybe just a few inches, and my poles go floating down. So I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, you know. I slowly turn over and I, I crawl out of the creek, retrieve my poles, I get back on land and it's, uh, I'm a little scared, right? Because I was by myself and I check everything, you know, my hands and arms are a little scraped up, but no broken bones. Uh, the backpack smelled like a swamp, but luckily some of the stuff was in waterproof bags. So I put on a change of socks and I thought, well, I don't want to go back to the hostel or I want to move on to the next shelter. You know, I, I, I hate, I hate to backtrack. So I thought I'll go on. So I'm following what I thought was the, the, the trail was marked by white blazes, right? Mm -hmm. An infinity of white blazes that stretch from Springer Mountain to Mount Katahdin. So I, I'm following what I think is the white blazes and I look up and it's, uh, they're not really white. It looks like someone painted over a blue blaze, which would indicate a side trail. So I thought, oh, geez. I said, man, that's just a tough day to get lost because it was still raining hard. And it would come down. The monsoon would come and let up. And I look in the distance, and about 20 or 30 yards ahead of me, there's this woman standing there smoking a cigarette. Here I am in the middle of the woods. <laughs> and I thought, no, man, is, here I go again. You know, am, am I hallucinating again? So I walk up to her and I says, you know, I says, I'm, I'm kind of lost. I gave her my name. You know, I said, can you lead me back to the trail? And she says, sure. So she leads me back to the trail. And then I says, by the way, what's your name? And she says, my name is Regina. Okay. So here's where the story gets interesting. Mm -hmm. I had two aunts that were nuns. And the oldest one would have been the oldest one. Her religious name was Sister Regina. And she died in the early 40s from tuberculosis at the age of 24. She was a missionary down in Alabama at a place called St. Francis School and Church for colored children. So I never got to meet Sister Regina. But, of course, being a family member, you heard stories about Sister Regina. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, oh, man, I said, this has really got me really spooked. 
So now I'm not only scared, I'm spooked. So I go up to her, trying to collect my thoughts. I wasn't sure what to say or do next. I was scared after the falling into the creek. Now I was spooked. Hmm. Am I dead? I blurted. For the first time since I fell in the creek, the sobering thought that I might actually be dead crossed my mind. Maybe I was knocked unconscious and drowned. Perhaps this woman was my spirit messenger to carry me across to the other side. Are you dead what? She quips, still staring straight ahead, smoking the cigarette. Uh, uh, dead like dead lost, I stammered, scrambling for words that didn't make me sound like a lunatic. She said, hardly. Just follow my directions and you'll be back on the trail in no time. Hardly dead or hardly lost or somewhere in between isn't a good place to be on a day like today, I mumbled to myself. So then she gave me these directions to get back to the trail. And it was a muddy, it was a muddy like a uh, power line trail. So I'm slipping and sliding in the mud. About, oh, maybe half an hour, 40 minutes later, I turn a corner and there she is again. I had walked in a big circle. And by now, it's like, gosh, I'm completely covered in mud. So I said to her, I, I said, uh, I said, I said, could you give me these directions again? Right? And I said, what are you doing out here? She said, looks like I was waiting for you. I said, oh. I said that was. So then she gave me directions, and I eventually got back on the trail. But I had to pass a parking lot. And once again, there was no cars in the parking lot. I have no idea where this woman came from. And then later on, probably when my mother was in hospice, and I'd go sit with her on Wednesdays, we would look at pictures of the family from younger days. And she showed me a picture of Sister Regina, her first name was Helen, when she was a teenager. And I silently gasped because the picture my mother showed me resembled this woman that I met in the woods. Oh, wow. Now, you know, well, again, you know, was I imagining things? I don't know. But I, I saw that picture and, and I, I, it was like, I was at a loss for words. Hmm. Sounds like a ghost. So, so to this day, uh, no one stepped forward <laughs> to claim the identities of the person in Klingman's Dome or at Laurel Creek. So once again, I, I embrace the mystery. Yeah, I, I mean, in order to be there for 40 minutes, that's a long cigarette. And then, and then that evening... So I, I went into town. I was going to stay at a hostel because I, I thought, man, I, I, I need a good night's sleep and I need a hot meal. And I got to the hostel and there was nobody there. Uh, it was like a scene from the movie The Shining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with Jack Nicholson. It was like it was a big hostel. It was, it was an old hotel and it was kind of spooky. So I, 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 I quickly washed my stuff, put it in the dryer, got things dried up, and got back on the trail. And then that night at the shelter, it was probably, I call it the darkest night of the soul because a, a thunderstorm kind of stalled over the shelter and lightning was crackling all around us. 
and I, I had an experience with lightning on Albert's Mountain uh, the first week of the hike. And I was a little scared. And I thought, that's probably the first time I questioned, what am I doing on the Appalachian Trail? Am I needed more at home to be with my father, to help take care of my mother? And by this time, my wife and her trail name was Rainbow Bright, short and bright. She was back home being a caregiver to my mother and father. And I was ready, ready to just pack it in and head home. But, you know, there was that little inner voice said, no, Paul, you got you got to keep going. Because earlier in the hike, I had met a gentleman at, at the town of Hiawassee. And he was an older gentleman, and he gave me a donation to Herm's hike. And he, he confided to me that, and he was well in his late 70s, early 80s, that his wife, he had to put his wife in a nursing home for Alzheimer's in the last year. And at that time, I was telling him about the hike. He said, Paul, he said, failure is not an option. And so in the back of my mind, I'm hearing this echo, failure is not an option. So it, it kept me going forward, heading north. Okay. Then what happened? What happened with the lightning? Were you hit by lightning? Uh, no, I, I, I was, I, I was, I was coming out of the town of, uh, Franklin. I was hiking with my, my group until we split up, you know, to come home with the FBI interrogation. So it was me and a hiker by the name of Matchbox, a young guy. And his name was Matchbox because I swear this guy could make a campfire out of two wet rags. I don't know how he did it, but he just, this, this guy could make fire. So we're climbing up, and Albert Mountain was a pretty steep mountain. And as we're going up, there was a blue blaze trail that we missed. And as we go on, as we were going up the mountain, a thunderstorm, a severe thunderstorm settled over the mountain. And we were more than halfway up, probably about three quarters of the way up, and we got hit with another wall of rain, and we could hear lightning. And there was a lightning strike on top of the mountain. So, and he was ahead of me and I'm starting to slide down the mountain a little bit from the rocks and dirt because the rain is pouring down and I don't have a real handhold or foothold where I'm at. And I said to him, I said, well, how about we go back down? He says, no, he said, we can't see where we're stuck. He said, follow me. He said, we'll crest the mountain and we'll run across the top of the mountain and we'll sprint down to get across it. And I said, okay. So he takes off and I'm right behind him. So he's a little bit ahead of me. So on the top of this mountain, there's a fire tower. So I thought, oh, this is a great photo op, right? Little dumb standing there with two aluminum poles. So I get out my camera, ready to take a picture, and then I hear this crack and boom. Maybe 20 or 30, 30 or 40 yards behind the fire tower was a lightning strike. And it was so close that it, it knocked me to the ground and staggered me. And I, and I got up and I, I was reeling around like a drunk, and I looked behind a tower and I see there's you know, like a tree, smoke coming from a tree. The tree was on fire. Well, needless to say, I grabbed my poles and I ran like hell to catch up with this guy. And we ran down the side of the mountain until the point where we just collapsed along the trail, completely exhausted. But we were out of, you know, danger's way for the day. <laughs> so I was always leery uh, about lightning after that. <laughs> People ask me what my biggest fear was. You know, it was lightning was definitely it, you know, not getting lost, uh, not encountering a bear or rattlesnakes or anything or, or you know, crossing the swollen streams lightning. 
really scared the heck out of me. I think it would me too after that. It, it, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I brushed up on avoiding, trying to avoid mountaintops and storms. But the problem with that is a lot of times the storms would sneak up on you. You know, without warning, you'd hear thunder in the distance. And you're at a point where, you know, it's it, it's not a few miles to get a few hundred yards to get over the mountain. It's a few miles. So you, you try to find a low point or a you know, a gully or ravine or a small valley where you can take refuge, but it, it wasn't always that easy. Wow. So, um, let's see, do you go through Maryland? Yes, my, that was an, that was an incentive. That was like dangling a carrot in front of me since I, I am from Maryland. I live north of Baltimore. So the plan was I would hike to Maryland and then I, my wife met me at, at Penmar Park, which is uh, the northern point before it crosses into Pennsylvania. And then I, I went home for a few days. I was actually home uh, for Father's Day. Got to spend time with my father on Father's Day, which was a very, very special moment. But before that, hiking in the Shenandoah National Park, I hiked with my brother. And... There were a lot of healing moments that I hiked with people along the trail, and this was one of them. Because mm-hmm. my brother, he had lost a child to a an accident. At a, 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 his son was, uh, I believe, 12 years old. Oh, that's time. terrible. Yes. Uh, a, a, you know, as a parent of tragedy, you cannot imagine. And, and people said, well, you know, uh, my brother lost a little a uh, little bit of a smile, a little bit of sparkle in his eye. So when I invited him along, his son was a poet. He, he used to write poems. So what we did was, as we hiked through Shenandoah, we get to a mountaintop, of which there were many, and we hung these poems on the trees. And it was unbelievable therapy for my brother. Because we had biodegradable little poems on biodegradable little uh, ties, and we'd get to a campsite, and people would, people would say, "Oh, I saw them green things in the trees. I thought someone hung money." <laughs> it, said, it was just a poem. And my brother, we look at each other and laugh. And then when he hiked with me for a week through Shenandoah, and then for one night we went to his place, and then he had a, a his friends and had a cookout for him. And people said to me, they said, what happened up in the mountains? They said, we haven't seen your brother smile so much since Justin passed. And I said, well, I said, you're going to have to talk to him. But to me, I chalk it up to the healing power of the mountains. So it was it was quite a moving experience for us. Wow. All right. So, so did, you go, did you keep on going after Maryland into Pennsylvania? Yes, I, I went home, uh, spent Father's Day with, with my dad, which was, uh, you know, I, I, I tell the Alzheimer's families, the people that I meet, I said, you, you have to find purpose and meaning in your loved one's disease. I said, and basically what you're doing with, with people who are forgetting who they were, you're actually kind of 
you're kind of mining for nuggets, panning for gold, right? And a stream that's, that's running dry. And on that Father's Day, so I walked in and I hadn't seen my father since uh, March now. And this is, this is uh, June. And I could see he was starting to fade since the last time I saw him. But he was still, he could talk a little bit. So he's sitting in what they, I call it the uh, Cadillac for the Alzheimer's patients, the Jerry chair, this big chair, the wheels you can move around in different positions. So I walk in and he's there with my, my mother and my sister and my brother. And he looks at me. And he looks at my mother, he's holding her hand. And we had a cork board with pictures, various pictures of the family, right? The, keep him connected as much as we could. So he looks at me and he says, oh, young man, he says, you're a pretty handsome guy. And then my mother's sitting right next to him and he kind of leans to my mother and he says, you know, that guy, he looks a lot like me. <laughs> <laughs> everybody in the family says, he should look a lot like you. He's your son. And everybody's <laughs> laughing at my father. You know, he's just, he's looking, he's looking at me, looking at the picture on the wall, looking at my mother. He did he didn't know my name, but he sure in the heck knew who I was. And that was kind of a real heartwarming moment. <laughs> That's awesome. And which leads to another moment. And I, I tell people the Alzheimer's, gosh, what, what a disease to go through. Throughout my father's disease, my father was never, ever, uh, I've seen some very angry, some very, volatile, hostile people going through the late stages. But my father was like a teddy bear. I mean, he was just like a little kid. Even to the very end, when he stopped eating, whenever my mother would walk into the room, his eyes would sparkle and light up like a kid on Christmas Day. He would recognize my mother. And he would kind of just try to, he couldn't even reach his hands for it, but he would kind of try to reach out so he could get a hug. And I thought, if there's a silver lining in this disease with my family, that was it, right? And if there's any gift to be thankful for, that was the one. And no, everything else, as long as my mother got that recognition from my father, that was that was, to me, that was a miracle in itself. Yeah. Hmm. It's tough, sad, but at the same time, there's some inspiration there, too. So, so after Father's Day, where do you go next? Well, we're heading north uh, through Pennsylvania, uh, through New York, where I, I met... Uh, I think it's called the Bear Mountain Bridge that goes across the Hudson River. And as I was walking across the bridge, there were two gentlemen ahead of me. And I didn't recognize them, but I, I always wore this, this blue headband that I had. So they're about halfway in the middle of the bridge and they stop and they look and they're like waiting for me. And when I caught up with them, it was a gentleman named a circuit rider and his sidekick, Sherlock. And I had met them back in Virginia at one of the shelters where they were tending to a sick person. Mm -hmm. And Circuit Rider was a 
a Methodist minister who had a trail ministry. So every summer he would spend months on the trail, not necessarily converting hikers, but tending to any spiritual needs that they might have. Hmm. So I hadn't seen him since, oh, Virginia. So it's been a while. So he's going Sundance. He said, how are you? I said, Rev, I said, I'm running out of gas here. I said, you know, I'm, I'm physically hitting a wall. And he said, he said, well, come with me and Sherlock. We're going into, I think it was Peekskill was the town there. He said, for a few days to visit friends. He said, we're going to stay at the local church. He said, you're more than welcome to come. And I said, you know, I was afflicted with the white blaze fever. You know, I got to put miles, more miles, more miles behind me. So I said, I'm going up ahead. So I stopped at the Graymoor Monastery. And the Graymoor Monastery was won by a Franciscan order. And so I, I got there probably early afternoon. And they, they had a pavilion and a shelter, or a pavilion and a shower for hikers. So I thought, yeah, this is a good place to stop. So I, I kind of washed up. And I went up to the top of what they call uh, Graymore Mountain. And they have a number of chapels there. Now, this is a Catholic religious order. And they have a number of, of, of chapels there and historic sites and a tomb of Father Paul on top of the mountain. And overlooking uh, the tomb of Father Paul is a replica of Michelangelo's Pieta. A beautiful, beautiful statue. So I'm just walking around and I had this little self-guided walking brochure. So one of the groundskeepers, you know, he says, he says, uh, he said, can I help you? And I said, no, nah. I said, I'm one of the hikers. I said, I'm just, I'm done for the day. I said, I'm just, you know, resting. I said, I'm just taking this little self-guided tour. He says, well, are you interested in a real tour? And I said, no, what do you, he said, wait right here. So he comes back with this elderly gentleman, his, who was brother Pius. He was one of the uh, Franciscan friars that was staying, lived there as a retirement home. So he gave me, we got in this car and we went all around to every religious site in the area. Mm -hmm. So it was, and then when I told him, I told him the story about Sister Regina, my aunt, but then I had another aunt who was a nun in the same order, Sister Loretta, who was still alive. And she was in her 80s. And I told Brother Pius, she works in a parish in Trenton. I said, and she walks. I said, every day she walks to visit the sick, the infirm, to give them the sacraments. Trenton, New Jersey? New Jersey. Trenton, New Jersey. That's where I'm from. Uh, I was welcomed with open arms, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh. So Brother Pius, he said to me, he says, oh, he says, Paul, now you know where you got your walking jeans. <laughs> so the last stop was the chapel in the older part of, of the monastery. And it reminds you of a miniature cathedral with the tall pews facing each other and then the altar up front. And over top the altar, they had a statue of St. Francis looking down. And the statue was made from one of the death masks from St. Francis. So it was as St. Francis of Assisi was looking down upon you. So we're standing under this statue and, you know, and, and brother Pius says, well, I said, Paul, I said, you know, he said that, that, you know, this is probably the last stop for us unless you have, I said, no, no. I said, he said, do you mind if we, we say a prayer? I said, no, not at all. So we held hands and we prayed 
and I'm looking up at this statue, and there's a very pensive look on St. Francis, right? And any second, I expected this thing to come, this guy to come down from the cross and join us in prayer. <laughs> and I was thinking, ah, I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if St. Francis did come down and join us in prayer? And then I looked at the face of Brother Pius, and I realized St. Francis was standing right next to me holding my hand. And that was that was a moving moment for me. Hmm. And I kept in touch with a lot of these people, but unfortunately, um, I kept in touch with Brother Brother Pius. Uh, you know, we sent Christmas cards. Uh, I went up to see him once or twice at the monastery when I was doing section hikes, one time with my wife, and then he, he sadly passed away a few years ago. But what a saintly and holy man he was. It was, it was one of the most enjoyable afternoons I had on the trail. Hmm. So... Let's see, how far does it go? Does it go to Maine? Pardon? Was it? How far does that trail go? Does it go to Maine? To Maine. Uh, it, it changes every year, depending on uh, property rights, this kind of stuff. Trail reroutes due to erosion or whatever, uh, forest fires. The year I hiked it, it was 2,178.3 miles. Wow. That's a lot of walking. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. So, so how much further did you go after New York? Uh, through New York, uh, Connecticut, uh, and then I, I, Massachusetts, and then Vermont, and then uh, in Massachusetts. I, 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 it was another trail mystic that I wanted to meet by the name of Arlo Guthrie. The so musician? Arlo, pardon? The musician? Yes, Woody's son. <laughs> so are you ready for a good story? Yep. Of, of course you are. So here, in trying to uh, raise publicity, promote the hike, I, I sent letters to a handful of people who were involved with Alzheimer's. I, I sent one to Nancy Reagan, and surprisingly, she's the only one that responded to me. Her secretary said, you know, Miss Reagan, but, but she responded. Uh, a couple other celebrities uh, who were involved with the Alzheimer's Association never heard from them. And for some reason, I thought Arlo Guthrie because his family went through this thing with the Huntington's disease, which was uh, prevalent as family. And I thought, well, he lives near the trail. Maybe he'll respond. So I sent a couple letters to an address and find out that was the right address. That was his home address. No response. So then he had a, uh, an email address for his record company, which was called Rising Sun Records, as Sun as S-O-N. So I sent them a couple emails. So finally, I didn't get no response. So I, I, I kept sending the email. So finally, I got an email and it was, thank for your interest in Rising Sun Records. If you're ever in the, air, in the area, stop by and say hello. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I knew I was getting blown off, right? <laughs> but I had this letter that said, hey, if you're ever in the area, stop by and say hello. So what I did was I, I stopped at Trinity Church, which today is the Guthrie Center, which was one time, also, it's also known as Alice's Restaurant, 
which was the home of Alice and Ray Brock, and where the whole Alice's uh, Arlo story about the Thanksgiving dinner where he was arrested for loitering, uh, you know, convicted, uh, had a record, didn't have, to, was deferred from the draft, so forth and so on. So I had lunch there one day, just really to kind of visit the Guthrie Center and see what it was all about. So on the day I was there, I believe it was a Wednesday, they had lunch. And it was, and I thought it was going to be a bag lunch for seniors. And most of the people there were seniors, but it was a lunch made from fresh ingredients. So I sat down there and I had spoken with the director of the center. And I was asking him about, you know, is Arlo home? And, and of course, he wasn't telling me anything because he probably thought, man, this guy's a celebrity stalker, which I understood. So I sit down to lunch. And one of the older gentlemen, he leans, he says, he says, he says, Paul, I heard you're talking to George. You want to get to Arlo's place, right? I said, yeah. I said, but I don't know where he lives. He said, you're hiking the trail. I said, yeah. He said, when you get to the blueberry farm, now there was this, a farm up on the trail. It was famous. You could pick blueberries and the lady had cookies for you and stuff. He said, just past there, you're going to see an old road. And he made it sound like it was, it was an old country road that was no, it was abandoned. He said, follow that road. It'll take you right down to Arlo's driveway. Okay. So I get back on the trail. I get up to the farm and another one of these rainy days. Uh, no cookies. No one's picking blueberries. So I head on up the trail. I found this road. So here it is. Mm-hmm. It's pouring down rain. I'm deciding, oh, man, do I want to take a detour or just walk another eight miles to get to town? And I says, well, I had my... Uh, I had to print out of the email in my backpack. <laughs> I had my wife send it to me at one of the mail drops. So I said, what the heck? I come this far. So I go down to the road and I come to a, to a intersection, a T. So I go right because it leads down. So I end up, I end up on the County road, a paved road. I thought, well, that's not it. So I walk back up. So I thought, well, I'll go the other way. It's all uphill. So I see this sign nailed to a tree that says hippie road. And I said, bingo, that's it. So I go and, and I'm a couple hundred yards later, I'm standing in this courtyard and there's a big farmhouse to one side and kind of a, a, a barn to my left. And I, I see cars parked there and I thought, this is it. This is it, Paul. So I think, I don't know what to do. Would I go knock on the door, you know, because I would like to take a picture with Arlo just to post it on my uh, website and Facebook page, you know, just to drum up some publicity for the hike. I was not asking for any money from people. So mm-hmm. as I'm pondering what to do, the door in back of me to this barn, it was a barn, opens and closes. This lady steps out and I said, I'm looking for Rising Sun Records. She said, through the door. So I go through the, I knock on the door and I hear this, come on in. And I open the door and there's Arlo's family, his daughter's and son are there. Right. And I recognize them from pictures. So I, I said, you know, my name's so-and-so and I walked 1500 miles. I said, you know, and I had this invite to stop by <laughs> and they look at me like, who in the heck is this guy? And they're chuckling. And they says, uh, we don't get too many hikers. They said, matter of fact, you're the first hiker we had. So I asked, you know, I showed them the email and I said, you know, all I really to do is get a picture with your dad. And he said, well, he, I, I figured he was off the road because he took all, he takes off in, in July. They said, well, yeah, he's home, but he's not home. And I said, oh. So they said, well, you can take a picture with us. So I took a picture with the Guthrie family. 
Okay. And they gave me some free CDs and then we, you know, <laughs> sent me on my way. Recommend I was dinner, dinner time. So they said, Oh, well, you go down to the road, hit trike. You there's a general store down the road. So I get down to the store and, and, and by now it's, it's early, it's getting dark and it, it's still raining. So some guy from the store drops me back at the road to let the Arlo's place. And I thought, Oh man, I said, it, it, it's, it's getting dark and dark clouds. I said, I, I don't have any. So I said, where am I going to sleep tonight? And then there were some abandoned band buses in Arlo's yard. So what I did, I snuck around the property and I found one that was open and I spent the night in one of Arlo's band buses. <laughs> Making sure I didn't, I thought, man, I thought, if he has dogs or something, what's going to happen? I said, you know, I'm going to be arrested for trespassing, but it, it was worth the risk of, of spending the night. And it was nice and dry, and I, I found like you know one of those cushioned benches, like a little bunk in the in the front of the bus. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, you know, I, I tell people I could just imagine the conversations and the music that took place in this bus. And I always wondered why Arlo didn't get rid of the buses. And then I realized that you know there is family heirlooms, just as probably much as his guitars. Yeah. And and what one of the things that fascinated about Arlo was that. Uh, I had read an article years ago before I hiked that he, he went on his own spiritual journey where he was exploring Catholicism, uh, you know, Buddhism and his own uh, Jewish heritage. And, and he had a, uh, at the Guthrie center, they had a, it was actually like a painting on one of the walls as you went in, and it said inside the building, that's the church, which was now a community center and performing arts venue that also hosted interfaith workshop services. The walls were adorned with pictures and posters of Woody Arlo and other artists. Above the hallway was a sign that read one God, many forms, one river, many streams, one people, many faces, one mother, many children, Ma. And Ma was Ma Jaya Sati Bhagavati, uh, who became a spiritual master to Arlo, who believed that divinity manifested itself in many ways and forms. And that, you know, that was another signpost on my spiritual journey, other than seeing Hippie Road <laughs> out front of Arlo's place. And I thought, man, it would have been wonderful to have a, a conversation with Arlo about spiritual journeys, but I ended up with a pretty nice story yeah. about Arlo. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> so, so that was in Massachusetts? Heading toward Vermont, uh, and, and Vermont was where, where really my my hike ended in 2009 because what happened was I, I fell, uh, dislocated my shoulder, mm -hmm. uh, sprained my knee with, well, probably the least of my words, but the shoulder. I, I, I couldn't put the backpack on. So I, I came home uh, very despondent. You know, because I was, man, I made it to Vermont. I had 500 miles to go. You know, I was almost to the White Mountains. And my dream was to get to the White Mountains because I, to me, the White Mountains, they were my, that was my Mount Everest. That was my Himalayas. And I, I just couldn't do it. And then, you know, where people were saying, and I got a lot of emails from the people I met on the trail. And they were saying, Paul, you know, look, you raised so much money. You know, there's no such thing as coincidence life. This 
accident happened for a purpose. You were meant to be home with your father and your family. Yeah. And that was in August. And I did, my father passed away in November. So I, I, I did have some time to spend with him. And then I, I call it the winter of discontent because I, I really wasn't sure if I was going to go back on the trail. And people say, I, I said, look, I said, the mountains heal, but the mountains also hurt. I said, you know, it's a pilgrimage. I said, you know, you got to go through pain to reach this state of enlightenment. And so finally, uh, my mother and my wife, you know, throughout winter, you know, they were saying, well, you should go back. You know, your, your, your father would want to go back, complete the hike. You know, it's no longer Herm's hike. It's Herm and Paul's hike. So we had a few nice days in March. Spring-like days, and I, I said to my wife, I said, I'm going back. And she said, you should. So that's when I decided to finish the hike. Mm -hmm. But before I finished the hike and got back on the Appalachian Trail, the white blazes pointed west to Bear Butte State Park in South Dakota, just kind of northeast of Sturgis. Because my wife and I... Uh, her nephew was get, was getting married in Billings, Montana. So we decided, you know, we're both retired. Why not make this the road trip of a lifetime? So we went, uh, we went stopped at the Dyersville where they shot the movie of Field of Dreams. And then we stopped and visit uh, her sister-in-law in Storm Lake, Iowa. So we made, we made some uh, visits to, to visit family because my wife was originally from Iowa. And then we ended up at, uh, Crazy Horse Monument, because I always wanted to see the monument itself. Mm -hmm. So we, we took the little bus tour down the monument, got back to the visitor center, which was a community center, and there were a number of Native Americans selling uh, crafts and goods. And at one table, there was a gentleman there with books, and the back of me had a big banner. So being, you know, a writer myself, I'm drawn Two books. So I go up to the table and I pick up a book and I'm summoned through and I look on the back of the cover and I look at the gentleman standing behind the table. I said, that's you. He said, that's me. He said, Ed McGaugh, the Eagle Man, a Lakota medicine man, mm -hmm. Lakota elder, uh, Marine Corps fighter pilot, Korea and Vietnam. So he was, he was the real McCoy. So we started talking and he says, well, where have you been? And I said, well, I said, you know, we've been here. Uh, we've been the spirit man. We're Lewis and Clark. I said, we were at St. Joseph's Indian School because my mother used to donate money there. <clears throat> I said, I'm going to Pine Ridge. <clears throat> I want to go to Pine Ridge. And then I want to go to Custer National, the Custer Battlefield, Little Bighorn Battlefield. So... <clears throat> He gets a concerned look and he says, so you're one of these pretendians. And I, I, said, I said, what do you mean? He said, Wasichu. He said, white man who wants to hijack our culture. I said, uh, I said, no, I said, no, 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 I'm not an Indian wannabe. I said, I'm a history buff. I'm a historian. So I'm explaining it to him. And he says, evident he was familiar with, with hiking. He says, what's your trail name? And of course, and I said, Sundance. And then he got a real concerned look on his face. He says, oh, he says, Sundance, like our sacred ceremony. And I said, uh-oh. 
I hadn't thought about that because right away what came to mind was the movie with Richard Harris, A Man Called Horse. Mm -hmm. They do the Sundance ceremony. And the connotation never clicked with me. What clicked with me was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So I said, man, I'm in trouble here. And I said, I said, I said, Ed, I said, no. I said, let me tell you. I said, and I, you know, we were looking at each other, and he's 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 getting a little peeved with me, just, you know, like I'm a, I'm I'm a phony. And I said, here's one thing I learned from hiking the trail. I said, for people to get back to their spirituality, I said they got to get back through nature might be the main resource, the main venue. I said it's one thing they can learn from your people and your religion is getting back to nature the divine through nature. And I got to tell you, his look, it, it changed dramatically. You know, because he leaned over and he said to me, he said, Paul, he said, uh, he said, you're not on a vacation. He said, you're on a spiritual journey. I said, whoa. So he says, do you mind if I say a prayer with you? And he said a prayer in Lakota and it gave me goosebumps. I didn't know what he was saying, but the tone and the reverence on which he said it. He said, this is a blessing for your safe journey to get back to Mount Katahdin. So now I'm ready to leave. And he says, I want you to do me a favor. I said, okay. He said, I want you to stop at Bear Butte Mountain. Now this is, uh, it's Bear Butte State Park. It's the, uh, it's a butte that just rises out of the plains there in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. And it's a sacred mountain to the Plains Indians. So I said, well, we were going there anyhow. I said, but I'll go. So my wife and I go uh, the next day. And basically, we're the only ones there. So we hike up to Bear Butte Mountain. We come back down. And we're in the parking lot. And this gentleman approaches us. Obviously, he was, you know, a Native American. And he had, like, uh, green shirt, green pants, as if he was a state park employee. And he says, he says, oh, he says, I, I, I see your license plate. He said, you come a long way. I said, yeah. And he, you know, he asked where you're going, blah, blah. And then he says, I see you hike the Appalachian Trail. I said, yeah. I said, I said, then I was telling him about meeting the Eagle Man, Ed McGuire, yesterday. And he says, oh, he says, a hero to our people. And he's going on and on. And then he says, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And I said, well, I started you mentioned it. I said, I told him about the hike and finish it on Mount Katahdin, which is another sacred mountain uh, to Native Americans. And I said, I'm looking to put some kind of rock, a sacred rock. So he says, wait right here. So he goes and he disappears behind a building. He comes back and he's got this nice flat rock that's maybe 12 inches by maybe eight inches. And he's holding it out to me. He holds it out to me and I, I grab it and we're both holding on the rock. He says, I, I give you this as a gift to my people with one condition. He says, if you don't leave this on Mount Katahdin, you have to bring it back here. I'm thinking, oh boy. I said, here we go. The FBI is going to get me for mailing Indian art, illegally mailing Indian artifacts. I said, how am I going to mail? I said, okay. So what we did was we got home. And my, my wife painted the rock with the Alzheimer's Association logo, and she put some names of people who wanted their loved ones uh, memorialized on the rock. And we took that rock and we placed that rock on top of Mount Katahdin. But Ed McGaugh, the Eagles man, oh, 
<laughs> he was uh, book religions. He didn't embrace book re- white man's religion at all. Mm-hmm. He was of the he was of the philosophy. Religion comes from the heart, not necessarily from the head. And what he told me, he said, Paul, as you get out there and hike the trail, he said, embrace the mystery of the creator. He said, a book is not going to have all your answers. He said, it has to come from the heart at a certain point. And no truer words were spoken from the eagle man. <laughs> so that was, that was a, a boy. Was that, was that a part of the spiritual journey? Huh? That was, it was an amazing trip. That is. That's incredible. So you made it to the final destination and left the rock? Yes. Uh, so we, I finally, I get, I get up, I get up into, I, I get into the White Mountains, which was a spectacular hike. And since I was one of the early hikers, I got to stay at these. They have huts for tourists that are run by the Appalachian Mountain Club. So for a, a fee, like at a hotel, you know, hikers can go from hut to hut. And I forget, and they have, a, the, the huts are staffed by a college students that they call the crew, C-R-O-O. And they cook the meals, they clean up, and they put on skits after the evening dinner. And it, so if you get there early enough, you can sign up for work, work for stay, <clears throat> which I did in every hut. So it was a great experience. And I, I met some wonderful people up there. And then from the huts, I went to Maine, and the toughest mile on the trail was what they call the Mahusik Notch. And it's a mile of climbing over boulders that range from the size of, of houses to school buses. I mean, you, you literally have to crawl under the rocks, take your backpack off. And it took me two hours to get through a mile of the trail. And then you have to literally climb out of the notch. It's almost straight up like a cliff. And I thought, how am I going to get up here? And I'm looking to the side. You can see where the bark is peeled off the trees from people climbing up there. <laughs> but climbing down into the notch, I slipped and, and sprained my ankle, severe sprain. And I thought, here we go again. Last year was a dislocated shoulder. This year is a sprained ankle. But I had a bad ankle since my early 20s where I roll it and the ligaments stretch out. And I mean, it turned all uh, yellowish, purplish, bluish, and swallowed like a balloon. Mm. But after a few days, I could put my boot on and continue the hike. So that's, I finally made it through Maine, got to Monson, where I hooked up my wife. And, and then we hiked what they call the wilderness to last 100 miles together. So that was, uh, yeah, that was the end of the journey. It was, uh, was quite a relief to hike up to Mount Katahdin and finally put that rock uh, on top there by the sign. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of, of our talk here mm-hmm. that things came full circle. So I, I got to Monson and, I, and I'm waiting for my uh, wife to arrive. She told me, you know, she's on the road. She's going to be there such that day. So I went into town and I got to be kind of a fixture in the town because I spent two days there. So I'm coming back into town and I see this woman and her trail, I had hiked with them the year before. It was two ladies about my age. And, and the one lady is, 
we hiked for a couple of days and we shared a lot of stories and a lot of tears because both our fathers died from Alzheimer's. So I had a bond with them. I never thought I would see them again. So the one lady says, she says, oh, she says, she said, your women are here. She says, your wife's waiting for you back at the hostel. And she said, Rockamimi, which was the other lady's trail name. She said, she just went into town. She says, she wants to see you before you leave. I said, no problem. I said, we're going we're to probably uh, leave later this afternoon, spend the night in Millinocket, and, and then hike up to the mountain. So we get back. We're all back at the hostel, me and the, my wife and these two other ladies. So I said to this lady, Rocky Mimi, she says, she's asked me about the hike. And I said, you know, I was telling her about the sacred rock. So my wife goes to the car, gets out the rock, and, and she holds it up. And all of a sudden, tears start streaming down this woman's face. And I couldn't understand what, you know, it was just a rock we painted with the Alzheimer's Association. And the first name that I had on the rock in memory of was her father's name. <laughs> boy, Jerry, talk about a touching what a moment. Way to end. Man, that, that, that gave me goosebumps. I said, you know, yeah, we're I'm here for a purpose. And this purpose might be some of these people that I met on the trail whose families have suffered and been affected by Alzheimer's. Wow, what a fantastic ending. And then after that, you know, I, I came home and I, I had time to spend time with my mother. Mm -hmm. But then prior to finishing the hike, I, I had, I call this the Bodai tree, like the Buddha. Because mm -hmm. this one night I was by myself in the main mountains, in the woods, at a shelter. No one came. So I... I just sat there. I had a book. It was a Thoreau reader or something. And I, after I got done, I started getting too dark to read. I just sat there. And I just let the darkness envelop me. And it got to the point where I unconsciously was sitting in like a, a meditative position. You know, my, my feet tucked under and my eyes closed. It got so dark you couldn't see. Right. Complete blackness, total blackness. Couldn't even see the hand in front of my face because, you know, there's no city lights. There's nothing. So I thought, man, I don't, I don't want to break this spell here. So what I did was, you know, I, I, I just crawled around and I didn't put on my flashlight. I, I kept things as they were because you know, I, I didn't want to break the uh, meditative spell. So I, I went to sleep that night and I had this dream that I was following this man on the trail. And I couldn't catch up with him. I'm, you know, and I'm running in slow motion. It's like my feet are, are, are sticking in the mud. And, and the gentleman had a peculiar gait to his walk. And I'm, I'm calling out, calling out, you know, wait for me, wait for me. And just before the crest of this mountain, this gentleman turns around. And it was my father as a young PFC in 1941, just before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, when he was in the army. Boy, and, I, and I bolted upright, and I was in a cold sweat, and it was like, geez. And I remember that I wore this blue headband, and the hiker I was following had this blue headband. So the next morning when I woke up, I was looking for my blue headband and couldn't find it. And I thought, ah, I fell out of my pocket. 
once I got in front of the shelter and back on the trail, there was my blue headband. <laughs> so subconsciously, you know, maybe I saw the headband fall out or I stuck it in my pocket. Maybe that's what keyed the dream. I don't know. I was just glad I didn't find the second blue headband on the trail because I really would have been shook. Hmm. And then when I had time to spend with my mother, I was telling her about that dream. And she said, you know, I had a very similar dream that you and your father were hiking together. And he was hiking as a young PFC in the army. And it, wow. But she didn't mention anything about the blue headband, but she did mention that we were hiking together. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like you were together. You weren't alone. So it, it, once my mother passed away, it, it's kind of like the pieces of the puzzle fell into place. Uh, you know, I had no intention of writing a book, even though, you know, I'd written some history books before. But then people said to me, I, I started hiking with a group called the Nashville Backpackers. I did section hikes with them on the AT. They would go out for a week or two. And, you know, I was telling them, I, you know, around the campfire, you tell stories. And they said, Paul, they said, you got to put this down on paper. I said, just to give some hope and comfort and purpose to people, Alzheimer's families and people were suffering with disease. And I said, well, I said, you know, it's, it's a lot. And I said, well, you know, maybe you're right. And then what I started and uh, seems like I could never finish. And then I had, there was a, this a couple, they had been married for 40 something years. I had known uh, the man and the woman since I was 10 years old. So I, I knew these people gosh, going on 50 years. And the wife developed Alzheimer's in the late 50s. And it, it was just crushing to my neighborhood friend. But he stayed, he kept his wife at home. He retired and kept his wife at home and cared for her until the day he died. And that was inspirational. And that gave me the, really the inspiration to finish up the book. Hmm. So that's that's how I ended up. <laughs> getting this thing finally, you know, getting motivated to put it in print. Wow. Incredible. So what's next? You going to do the trail again? Are you going to do something else? Uh, I, I still hike the trail. Uh, no more than a week at a clip. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'll, 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 I'm 69 years old. Uh, I would love to be able to get out there and go for months but i'm supposed to hike at the end of june due to the maryland section and and part of maybe virginia and pennsylvania so i will get out for a week uh, that that's about my limit now mm -hmm. but I, I still enjoy getting out Great. so I, I closed i i would like to read to you two quotes that i closed the book with because they kind of bookend my whole experience and one one is from my my uh, my mentor, Henry David Thoreau, and it says, pursue some path, however now we're in crooked, in which you can walk in love and reverence. And that's, wow, that's kind of where I ended up. Yeah. And the John Muir quote of, you know, miracles can happen in the nature. And then I also closed with, eh, here comes Joni Mitchell again, right? <laughs> if you're a baby boomer in the Woodstock era. The final quote is, we are stardust, we are golden, and we got to get ourselves back to the garden. 
And that, that sums up my whole hike because, yeah, people need to get back to nature, as I said, to enhance their relationship with God. And, and you know, you know, I tell people, they say, well, what's, you know, what's the difference between religion and, and spirituality? I say, well, you know, religion is all about, you know, rituals and tradition, spirituality. You're kind of looking inward, you know, and, and finding uh, meaning to your life. You know, you're kind of uh, self-searching your soul. And I, I said, but the big thing is, I said, religion's great, man. I said, you know, it paves the way. I said, it's going to lead you to the trailhead that leads to the mountain. I said, and once you get to that trailhead, I said, then you're on a spiritual journey because you'll be searching inward for answers, you know, to your purpose in life and your meaning for existence. And I tell people now, I said, you know, we're all connected in some way. I said, the people that you meet in your life, I said, you don't know who you have a profound effect upon. I said, one day on your passing, and then, you know, the concept of heaven and hell has kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit. But I, I certainly believe there's an afterlife. Uh, what it is, is, you know, we connect back to the creator. We go yeah. back. And, and like I told my mother, I said, I, I don't know. We don't know what it is. I said, something beautiful. I said, something we cannot imagine. I said, that type of unconditional love. I said, you know, that, that's what it's all about. And there was a church when I was growing up. It was a uh, Lutheran church, kind of a stately church. But they, on the top of the, the the bell tower, they had this big red sign that they would turn. It didn't flash. It just said, God is love. And that's what it's all about. And then people say, I said, that's it. I said, if you're compassionate in life, kind in life, I said, you're loving in life. I mm. said, and, and my, my definition now is God is love. And then I tell him, I said, why do you think the Beals were so popular? And I said, oh, I said, because they wrote about love songs, right? They wrote, all you need is love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So that, that was, that was my journey and where I am today, uh, uh, you know, I'm at the point where I would love to be able to write about something more about spirituality and nature. And I keep doing it. I have a couple ideas. I'm I'm just waiting for, I guess, the right moment because I, are we running out of time? Do we, do we, are we, are we, how are we for time? Well, I'm getting ready to wrap it up. I got to go eat dinner. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had met someone recently uh, who was dying from cancer who wanted to do one final adventure, and he wanted to take one hike on the Appalachian Trail, a section hike. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he kind of asked me to go along, and I said, whoa. I said, that, that, that could be a profound journey. So that's, that's, you know, that's, that's another possible option out there. That's awesome. Yeah. So the, the the hike in the book, you know, it has already you know, affected me in a number of ways that that to me are, are, are truly mystical and truly magical. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Um, so before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you and find your book? Uh, 
Right now, the book is available uh, Amazon.com, all the outlets in e-form. But from what I told, if you want a hard copy, you have to go through the publisher, Ozark Mountain Publishing. And from what I was told, they have a contract with a national distributor, and the book will not be available in hard copy from Amazon.com until September, which is really right around the corner. But if you want that hard copy of the book, yeah, just go to the Ozark Mountain Publishing website, Ozark Mountain MT, click it on, and it'll take you right to it. Oh, great. Well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll post the links uh, to the book and note to this episode uh, so my listeners can uh, buy it and check it out for themselves. I, I appreciate it, and I thank you. Thank you. And just hang on for one second. I'm going to play the outro. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. And it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.